Last week, does anyone remember anything that Tanya shared? Anything about Romans or... It was all good? Yep, yep. Who wrote it? Paul, also known as Saul. Woohoo! And he was obviously writing to the Romans. Anything about the why he was writing it? He wanted to go there. He was really keen to go there. Now, Tanya kind of introduced it and she talked it up and said it's exciting. Now, Paul, Paul, is, um, Paul is very meticulous. He uses his words very, very carefully and he's um, very thorough too. So he, he doesn't fluff around very much. He's, he gets to the point and he tells it like it is um, and, he, and he uses words very carefully. And Tanya talked it up last week about, um, about God's grace and the fact that Paul shares at the, at the start about why he wants to go to Rome and he's really keen to get there and has, has a chance and, and God's grace. And this, this is kind of like the synopsis of the whole book. This is if you're reading the back cover in chapter one, Paul, Paul actually kind of gives a little bit of a picture. And it's really important to understand this picture because although Tan talked it up last week, it's not all easy going. Romans gets a little bit meaty and a bit, bit heavy and, uh, and can be a bit challenging. And so it's really good to understand the picture that Paul's trying to paint overall because if you look at things out of context, just pieces of them, you might not understand it. And you might also misunderstand it if you don't understand the whole picture of what he's trying to do in Romans. And this is what, what he says in, in Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And this is a bit of a summary. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, he's happy to travel to Rome and share what he's, what he's been given. He's not holding back. He's, he's keen to travel and he's just finished talking about how he'd love to be there. So, so he's not ashamed of it. But in amongst it is some really significant things because he acknowledges that this gospel, this message that he's sharing, is the power of God for salvation. So this message isn't just some nice words that, you know, he's doing a stage show and wandering around with his stage show. The message that he's sharing, he actually recognises is God's, is God's power expressed for salvation. Now, salvation is to save, to, to take someone in a tricky spot and take them out of that spot. So he's acknowledging that there needs to be some saving going on. And he's saying this message is what saves. And he goes on to say, it's to everyone, this message is for everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, some translations say to the Gentiles. And there's an, inter there's an interesting, like again, he uses words very carefully. So, but he says to the Jews first. So we've got the, the Jews and the Greeks. So the Jews are the ones that have been on this journey with God for a while. They've, they were given the law. They're, they're, the, they're the people that have been set apart to be God's chosen people. And the Greeks are actually people that he's going to visit. So in this case, they are Gentiles because they're not Jews but they're actually a particular type of Gentiles in that they're, they're the people in the area that he lived in that, that he's actually going to visit in Rome. So he's saying it's not only for the Jews, it was for the Jews first, but it's also for you, the people he's writing to. So the Greeks are actually part of Gentiles because Gentiles just means someone who's not a Jew, but it's actually the people that he's going to meet 
So the people he's meeting, the Greeks, this message is for them too. And then also he says it's for everybody. So that kind of covers a lot. So we kind of get this idea that he's specifically saying to them that it's for you, but it's not just for the Jews or the Greeks. It's actually for everybody, this message. It's really important to understand these, these um, different aspects as we keep going. Then he says, for in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this word righteousness, it's funny because I looked at all the translations and they all translate it to the word righteousness. But it's actually a sovereign crown. The literal translation is the crown that a king wears. And the righteousness of God is revealed in this message. So not only is he saving people, but when you're saved, often there's a bit of a guilt trip. There's a bit of a, I saved you, you owe me, you're indebted to me. And yet he's saying, no, 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 this is going much further than that. This is going way further than just being saved and you are indebted. This is like you're given a crown of sovereignty. You're, you're, you're not made to look weak and, and poor and, and insignificant. You're actually significant in this, which this, this would have blown their minds. And it says it's through faith, it's through believing, and it's for faith. It's for people's faith that it's done. So this picture is really important. And the reason this picture is really important is because the next verse says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Whoa, now we're getting heavy. If you didn't read the last verse and you took this out, quite often you'll find movies quote Bible verses and they'll quote something like this. You know, you know the, the, the preacher or the, you know, the bad guy even will quote the Bible and it'll be about God's wrath coming down to, to destroy people and and it paints a picture of what they're talking. Now, if you didn't read the last bit about his whole agenda for what he's writing about, this would look pretty scary and twisted. Um, and it's not insignificant. He wrote it, and he wrote it for a purpose. The wrath of God is his anger is revealed from heaven, heaven being the, the, the most significant platform. This wrath is coming from the most significant platform against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. We go, wow, how does this fit with the last message? I want to give you an example. If one of you were, and I'm not suggesting you do this, so teenagers don't get excited, if one of you were to buy your children a car, um, they, you know, 18, 19, 20, they've just got their peas and you buy them a car. And two weeks later, you go out to the front and you see that. Or maybe you see that. Or possibly ever so more likely, you hear about that. How would you make you feel? Angry? Yeah? Why would it make you feel angry? Ungrateful, ungrateful. It wasn't the plan. You didn't buy a car to hoon around in a car park and stack into a, into a shop. 
that wasn't, that wasn't why you got them a car. You got them a car for a purpose. And you assumed they knew that purpose. And yet, in amongst this picture, something went terribly wrong. The car was used for what it wasn't intended to be used for. And this is a picture that we start in verse 18 looking at, where God is angry because he actually designed things to be a particular way. He had purpose, he had plans, and they were good, just like giving the car to your son or daughter was a good plan. And yet people, and the words Paul uses are godlessness or ungodliness and wickedness, were a distortion, were, were using what God gave in a way that it was never intended and it was never meant to be that way. And that's what he's angry about. It's like that dad or mum who's bought that car and it's been abused. It's been used for completely the wrong reason and it's causing hurt and damage and injuring people and messing things up when it was intended for good. And this is the context. If you don't read the first verse, that second verse just makes no sense at all. And so he keeps on going. And in the first bit past, past that, he says in Romans uh, 1, 24 to 25, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God, the way it was meant to be, for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we can see Paul starts talking about the reason why salvation is needed. So we've got this word salvation, you need to be saved, but he's starting to paint a picture of what people need to be saved from. And it's a really significant picture, and he really clearly articulates what it is that needs, people need saving from. And, and this paints that picture. He's not talking about specifics here. He's talking about the, the whole history of mankind. And there's almost even, and people speculate that, you know, the, serving a creature rather than the creator. Is he looking back possibly to Adam and Eve and the, and the serpent and following maybe uh, pointing to the fact that people chose to follow the serpent and the advice of the serpent rather than God? Um, but he's pointing to, to a very broad picture. But he gets a lot more specific in this passage too. Now, Romans being very meaty, we could go into a lot of detail. So I'm just kind of skimming over the surface and touching a couple of little points because we we could spend a long time doing this. And and I'm trying to give you a snapshot and point to a little bit of detail, but hopefully not get boring, if that makes sense. Um, Because there's heaps in there. Every single line, every single verse is is fascinating and and he's very deliberate with how he writes and so there's lots in there. But we'll just skim across the surface and touch to little bits as we go. So in this next section from Romans 1.18 to Romans 1.32, these are some of the things that he talks about to describe how people used that gift that God gave, that plan and purpose and twisted it. He talks about ungodliness and wickedness that we talked about before. And it just keeps going and going and going. And there's, there's, more, there's some things that are specific and there's some things that are very general. And at the end of this section where he paints this picture of what it looks like to be 
in sin. Now, sin is a Christianese religious word, but it's a very simple concept, and it's this concept that Paul's talking about. God's design for good twisted to not be done God's way. And that, this paints the picture of what sin looks like. When people use the things that God planned for good and twist them around and not do them God's way. And that's what sin is. And at the end of this is a very, very significant line. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. The funny thing is, in this day and age, it's no different. At this time, it's actually no different. And it's really interesting. There's times that I have to check myself that you go, you know, I try not to use language that's abusive, but I laugh when someone else does. I'll try not to, to do this thing, but I might, I might maybe encourage it in roundabout ways through other ways. And it's interesting, this, this talks about not only do people act this way, but they're not even ashamed about it. They're promoting it. They're actually encouraging it. And culturally, we've got a lot of challenges in this time about sin, about the idea of people living ways and acting and responding and doing things in ways that are not God's way, are not God's design and not how it was meant to be. And it's a really sad picture. But in this picture, Paul starts using words like a courtroom. He starts using words like judge and guilty and words like he's painting a picture of a courtroom. So if you imagine a courtroom, their courtrooms are a little simpler than ours. Imagine three parties in a courtroom. The first party is a judge, yeah? We all get that there's a judge in a courtroom. In their model, the, the, the rest was a little bit simpler. There is an accuser, someone who thinks something's happened that's not right, and there is the person who is accused, possibly guilty. And so there's three simple parties in their idea of a courtroom. And ours is similar, just a bit more complicated. But if you think about that picture, what is the role of the judge in that picture? In a, in a courtroom, what's the role of the judge? Make a decision. Determine truth, justice, yep. Parties treated equally, yep. So the judge is a really significant stakeholder in this process. And they're all spot on because if we have a picture of the way things were meant to be, the judge is actually representing that. He's actually standing up for, in the case of our courtrooms, the law. Everyone's agreed that the law is in this society what we're going to follow and he's trying to make sure that that's followed, that the truth is revealed out of the situation and that people are actually looked after. And this is a very significant picture of God because if he stands as the judge, he stands to represent how things were meant to be. He stands there and represents that picture of what was meant to actually happen. But he also, when we get a picture of God, we get that sense that he defends the widow and the helpless. Because if you go into that courtroom and you've got no representation and you're up against someone accusing you of something who's powerful, that's actually not a fair situation. And in this, in this picture, the judge is actually making sure that each party 
is fairly represented and the truth is revealed. Now, there's an interesting word that Paul uses called justification. And in their court system, it wasn't just guilty or innocent for the person being accused. You could end up with the accuser being guilty or innocent. So, for example, if Andrew decided that Matt ran over one of his goats, he would come into the courtroom and say, Matt ran over one of my goats, he owes me a goat. And so the judge would sit down and go, when did it happen? What happened? We'd have a conversation. But in the end, if Matt didn't run over the goat, Andrew's actually got something to answer for because he's actually broken the agreement. He's lied, he's cheated, he's tried to cheat the system. So in that situation, Matt would be justified. He would be acknowledged as being right before the law. And Andrew would be condemned for doing the wrong thing. So it wasn't, our system's very one-sided, but in that system, Andrew could get into trouble for making a false accusation in the, in the court. And so you've got the, the accuser and the person who's being accused, potentially the justified one is the one who is right before the law. Does this all make sense? We're doing all right? Cool. The problem is, if we keep following this courtroom model, Paul knows where this is going. He knows when he's talking to people where this is heading. And the most obvious way this is heading is our excuses. Now, we've all done it. We've all, we, we can all, we probably do it more than we like to admit. When something goes wrong, the first thing we often do, ah, uh, ah, uh, but what about them? They're worse than me. Those people over there. And in this case, Paul starts talking about judging others. He goes, so you think you deserve to be the judge on the seat, do you? And you want to point out the wrongs that others are doing. You better be careful. You better be really careful because you're actually not perfect yourself. And if you're not perfect, when you start pointing out other people doing the wrong thing, you're actually making yourself look pretty bad too. He says, that's no excuse. That's no way to handle this sin, is to say, what about them? They're worse than me. And we do it all the time. It's funny. You talk to anybody who, not anybody, I've talked to a lot of people who maybe got a speeding ticket or using their phone in the car. And it's like, what are the police doing worrying about that? They should be out there getting the criminals. <laughs> and it's like, but you broke the law. You're a criminal too. <laughs> You've done the wrong thing. And yet this idea of pointing to other people is something we try to use as an excuse to say, it's not me, it's them. They're worse than me. And Paul says, uh-uh. Every time you do that, you're actually pointing out the things that are wrong. And guess who's in the wrong camp? You. So you're part of wrong and you're making wrong more significant. So therefore, you're making the wrong more significant about yourself. It doesn't look good. Don't go down that path. So he moves on. I didn't know. He starts talking about those that are outside the law. Well, the Jewish people have the law. He says, having the law isn't what it's about. He says, there's Gentiles that follow God's law too because they show what the law requires is written on their hearts. He said, this has been since the start of time. 
the picture that God's painting about how this looks is not a new thing. It's not something that's exclusive to the Jews. The, the Greeks, the Gentiles, everybody actually knows because of the way their conscience is wired, the way their heart is wired, that, that, God, that God's designed. It's, you can't just say it's just the Jewish people that have got to follow the law. And if you're outside the law, then, oh, not my problem. I didn't know. He says, there's Gentiles that make the Jews look bad because they actually follow the laws better than the Jews do. The next excuse, but I'm special. There's, there's this sense, he, he's going through these arguments of why people should, you know, not get this law applied to them, this, this, this judgment applied to them. It's like, but hang on. Aren't the Jews meant to be set apart? They're, they're God's special people. They're the ones that are circumcised. They're the ones that, that have favour. And we've seen that in the past. They didn't deserve it, but they still got favour. And he says, you talk about the law and you talk about circumcision. But just because you have the law doesn't mean you follow the law. Just because you know what the rules are doesn't mean you obey them. And just because you're circumcised doesn't mean there's a transformation inside. And he says in verse 29, rather a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. So he starts breaking down this idea that this only applies to particular people. And the last one he starts talking about is but I'm making God look good. If I sin, then God gets to forgive me and we'll go, wow, how awesome is God? Yeah? <laughs> we're getting desperate now, right? We, we're starting to squeeze into places that, you know, we're getting a bit uncomfortable. We're running out of reasons. And yet there's this sense that by me sinning, I get to make God look good. And it says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, And why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say it, let us do evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Condemnation, another court word. It's all over. Condemnation is when you're condemned. It's the, the sentence has been determined. They deserve the condemnation if you think that you're making God look good by sinning. And these, these things, they, um, they might, be a bit, might get us a bit down, but they paint a very, very clear picture and a very, very significant picture that Paul wants to make very clear to us. This is the reality. Romans 3.11 says, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. And you go, wow, what a downer. What a dud message. Tan got the fun stuff last week. She's given me the rubbish this week. But you can see in this, he is very, very thorough. And Romans 3.23 is a familiar verse. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is very thorough and meticulous at getting this message across. And so you go, we clearly need to hear it. We need to know this. And why do we need to know this? It's because if we don't understand sin, we don't understand salvation. 
So when he says he's saving us, what's he saving us from? And if we have a perspective, which we pretty much do in our culture, I'm a good person that stuffs up occasionally. That's pretty much everybody has that idea that I'm a pretty good person that occasionally makes mistakes. We're happy to point out the mistakes that others make and maybe say that they're not a good person, but me, I'm all right. But unfortunately, that doesn't need saving. And so either we've got it wrong or God's got it wrong. Either we don't really need saving, we're doing okay, and God can go off and do his thing, or as the picture that Paul paints, we've got problems and we need God to save us from those problems. And that's why he so meticulously goes through that process of, of, of the potential arguments against the fact that all have sinned. And so we get to the end of this section, and it's not that um, it's designed to make us feel rubbish. It's to make God feel needed. And in our culture, we've got a real challenge because there's a lot of people who don't think they need God. And they don't think they need God because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And God explains that side of that picture in this passage. He says, their wickedness, God, God will let go and let them be who they want to be. When we don't understand sin, we don't actually understand God. And we don't understand love. Because when, when we talk about that picture at the start of of the gospel being the power of God for salvation. If salvation is weak and insignificant, then what's it say about God's power? It's weak and insignificant. And so this morning is not so much a revelation for, um, for how to live our lives, but a framework, a foundation. Paul wanted to make sure that people had the right framework the right foundation for what is going on to next, for what he's about to say next. And the foundation is we need help. We desperately need help. And that help only comes from one place. That's from God. And if we don't think we need help, that's okay. God will chase us as far as we let him go, but he'll let you go if you don't think you need help. But Paul is saying we desperately, desperately need help. And that is the framework. That's the, 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 the big part of this picture that he starts with to say we desperately need help. And if you remember from last week, Tanya made it clear that Paul actually was on a very different journey. And he actually talked about his past life being very righteous. He was meticulous about how he followed the law. So here's a guy who thought he had life all together. And yet now he's got to the point of saying, we desperately need help. I, I wonder in myself sometimes about my understanding of sin and my perspective of sin. Because my reflection of needing help reflects on my desperation towards God. And if I don't feel like I need help, then... I don't feel like I'm very desperate for God. And yet, the more I read things like this, 
the more I realise that there's so many line items there that reflect me, that reflect I've, I've taken that car and I've turned it into doing donuts and stacking it into buildings. It wasn't the design. It wasn't how it was meant to be. And remembering that picture, that it didn't just say it being saved, it actually said the righteousness of God revealed. So God doesn't leave us feeling guilty. He doesn't leave us with that, that sense of brokenness and desertion in that. There is an answer and there is a hope and he's provided that. I'm just not talking about that this week. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, uh, so often we think of sin as being yucky stuff we don't want to talk about. Lord, we think about it being uh, the past. We think about it being stuff that we, we avoid, Lord. But in this letter, Lord, Paul makes it very clear that, that, that sin needs to be articulated and it needs to be described and it needs to be explained because, Lord, you think it is significant. Lord, you think it's so significant that it was worth your son dying on the cross that when we get to that courtroom, you don't want us to wear the punishment of that sin. You think it's so significant that you made the ultimate sacrifice. And Father, we're sorry that we sometimes don't acknowledge the significance of that. Father, we, 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 we're sorry that sometimes we don't acknowledge the significance of you in our lives. And Lord, today, as we look at the, the ugliness of the state of humans, Lord God, we don't want to remain there, Father. Lord, because that ugliness only just points to an amazing, beautiful Saviour. And so, Father, if you want to remind us of that, Lord, we just pray that you remind us. But, Father, we ask that you would also remind us of that judge, the just, righteous judge and the sacrifice of Jesus. Because that is the gospel. That is your good news. That is something that we're not ashamed of. Lord, we're sorry and we regret that we stuffed it up. But we are so excited by what you offer. We're so excited by your power revealed through your gospel. And Lord, we just thank you so much for that. We praise you for that. And you ask you, Lord, that we would not remain in the place of thinking about sin, but we would use sin as a stepping stone to your grace, to your mercy, to your love, and to next week, Lord God, where we look at faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a distortion, as I said at the start, to look at that passage and just think God just is angry and, and hates the evilness because he doesn't just stay there. And so we want to have an opportunity this morning just to worship, just to acknowledge God in this scenario, acknowledge God in the brokenness because it is not helpless. It is not hopeless. It is not all over. 
The picture of sin is a reflection of man's brokenness, yes. But it's not the picture. It's part of a picture of God's awesome power. And so when we look outside and we see brokenness and we see ourselves in that mirror, that's not the final picture. That's not what God's aiming for. He's aiming for the solution. And that's the gospel. Gospel means good news. So sin is not the good news. Sin is identifying the reality so that then we can know the good news and experience the good news.